Well, good morning. As Pastor Daniel said, my name is Emily and I'm a pastor here. And I want to be honest and upfront. Today, our sermon is going to be a little bit on the nerdy side, okay? Um, I am a Bible nerd. And so I, when we were talking about reconciliation, uh, Daniel and I were planning this sermon series. And I said, I want to talk about the church in Ephesus. So that's where we're going to be at today. And I'm a little bit of a nerd. But like I said, we're talking about the sermon series, Reconcilable Differences. And we've been talking about different kinds of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. And that is just a big fancy word that literally means the restoration of friendly relations or the action of making one view or belief compatible with another. And normally I like to start off uh, my sermons with a pop culture reference or some fun anecdote to kind of ease us into the theme of the message. But when we think about the theme of reconciliation, there really isn't a lot of examples in our culture of genuine reconciliation, right? We see a lot of alienation and disagreements, feuds, partisanships, breakups, and the list goes on. You know, we might see these half-hearted examples of people trying to reconcile right at the end of a movie or a book just to drive the plot forward, but rarely do we see a film or a book that does the hard work of reconciliation. But that's when it hit me. I think there is a movie that does a lot of reconciling, and that is the movie The Parent Trap. So let's talk about The Parent Trap for a second. Now, I know some of you will get mad at me for this, but when I talk about The Parent Trap, I talk about the 1998 version directed by Nancy Myers, starring Lindsay Lohan, Dennis Quaid, and Lisa Ann Walter. And I understand some of you like the original version, but this is my show today, and we're talking about the 1998 version, okay? So in this movie, uh, Lindsay Lohan plays both Hallie, uh, Hallie Parker and Annie James. And they are, of course, twins whose parents went through a nasty divorce and they were separated at birth and they didn't even know the other one existed until fate would have it. They attended the same summer camp and they met and they realized they had to be twins and they had this picture of what their mom and dad looked like and they put it together and they realized the whole story. And then for the rest of the movie, they have to go through reconciliation after reconciliation. In fact, every single character in that movie has to have some sort of reconciliation with someone else. And that's why I love this movie so much, right? They have to hash out old feuds, learn new cultures, build relationships, and fight for the unity of their family. And there are a lot of terrible decisions that get made in this movie, so I'm not going to say that all the things they did in this movie were right. But if you want to watch two hours and eight minutes of back-to-back reconciliations, I think it's worth a watch, okay? Um, but now we have been talking about different examples of reconciliation in the church. So we spoke about Onesimus the first week, and last week we talked about Paul and Barnabas, right? And all of these stories had one guy right at the center, and that is Paul. And I kind of like to think of Paul's life 
kind of like the parent trap, only in the way that he had to fight for reconciliation at every point in his life. He had a lot of reconciling to do. There were a lot of broken relationships, feuds, cultural differences in his life. And over and over again, we see Paul fighting for this reconciliation and this peace between people. And he wasn't always perfect at it, but he tried, right? And this might just be me theorizing, but I think one of the reasons that Paul fought for reconciliation so much was because of how he was reconciled with Christ. So you might have heard this story before, but Paul used to be named Saul. And Saul was kind of a punk, to put it mildly. Um, He actively persecuted and arrested early Christians um, for sharing the good news of Jesus. And so one day he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him in this great flash of light and kind of told him to knock it off, right? Stop what you're doing and follow me instead. And Paul had a lot of reconciling to do with Jesus, but also with the fellow members of the early church, right? And it actually took him a few years to be reconciled fully back into the fold of this new generation of believers. And so there is a lot of water under Paul's bridge. And I think he truly understands the power that reconciliation can have within the church due to the power of Christ Jesus. So today we're going to talk about another example of reconciliation that Paul got wrapped up in. And that has to do with the church in Ephesus, like I said. And this has nothing to do with individuals like we've been talking about in past weeks, but more ideas between two different people groups within the church that have different political and cultural understandings. And I'm sure that none of us have ever experienced this, right? We've never experienced two separate groups within the church who believe two different things. I know, that's crazy for us to imagine. Um, But this story has a lot of different layers. And I think in order to fully understand those layers, we're going to have to start off with a history lesson. So this is where the nerdy part comes in. So with that, let's start another Bible review lightning round with Pastor Emily. Okay? So we get a lot of this information from Acts. But some of it also comes from context that Paul wrote in his other letters. So during Paul's last-ish missionary journey, he was in the town of Ephesus, which is kind of in the middle. It says the province of Asia. You can see it up there. And this was regarded as Asia, but it is considered to be modern-day Turkey. And he was there for actually quite a long time, uh, Luke records. And this is one of the reasons why we think Paul just loved the Ephesians. He was actually there for over two years, which is the longest he was at any of his missionary sites in Paul's journey. And that's what, at least according to what Luke recorded in the book of Acts. And there was a ton of ministry that happened in Ephesus. So as you can see, it's right on the coast. So it had a lot of people in and out. Excuse me. And it was a large worship site for Romans and Greeks to come and worship their gods, specifically the goddess of Artemis. So a lot of people would come to Ephesus looking for spiritual clarity. So as you can imagine, it was a great site for early Christians to be able to do missionary work in this town because people were already coming here looking for some answers. They were looking for something to believe in. And there was a lot of things to be done. So that led to a really large multi-ethnic church that started in Ephesus. 
And Paul was letting these Gentiles or non-Jewish believers be a part of the church without observing all of the cultural Jewish laws. So basically anybody who is not Jewish by birth is called a Gentile, right? That was the word that was used. And so Greek or Roman or people from all over, they were called Gentiles. And Paul kind of has this thing where he didn't make new believers follow all of the cultural laws that existed for Jewish believers. And the big one being circumcision. And we'll get back to that in a second. But when it was time for Paul to leave Ephesus, okay, so he's in Ephesus and he's about to leave, Luke gives this account of a really hard and heartfelt goodbye. It was really hard for Paul to leave the church at Ephesus. He loved them. But Paul was on a mission and he had to leave. So Paul travels from Ephesus down to Caesarea, which is right above Jerusalem. You guys see it in the far right-hand corner, right at the bottom, right above Jerusalem. So he sails down and he stops in Caesarea and he goes to this guy named Philip's house. And Philip is actually known for hosting many people with the gift of prophecy at his house. There were a lot of prophets in Caesarea. They kind of gathered together. And while Paul was there, these prophets said, hey, you should not go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Okay, because you when you go there, you will be arrested for the things that you've done. You're going to be arrested for the sake of the Lord. But Paul was on a mission and it was really hard to change Paul's mind about things when he kind of got his mind to something. He's pretty stubborn. And so he's like, no, I got to go. So he leaves Caesarea and goes to Jerusalem. And. Paul actually on this journey brought some people from the church in Ephesus. He brought them with him. So it's Paul and Luke and some of these Ephesians who came with him. And at first he starts telling all of the leaders in Jerusalem about all of the great missionary works that had happened while he was in Asia. And they're really excited about all of the new believers. Like they're very excited about what Paul was able to do. But then they learned that he was not making them follow all of these Jewish customs, these traditional Jewish customs. And again, this creates a big problem. And part of this is because specifically circumcision represents um, the old covenant. Okay, so when God made a promise to Abraham about establishing his people, Circumcision was one way to mark, like, hey, you are, you belong to this person. You have favor with the Lord. You are saved under the covenant. And there were a lot of things that marked this. And it wasn't just circumcision. There were other things, but that was a big one. And so when they realized that Paul wasn't making these new believers go through all of these other Jewish customs, they were really concerned because they thought that was a slap in the face to the law the Jewish law and the Jewish tradition specifically. So later, Paul is at the temple in Jerusalem, okay? And the temple is where God lived. That's, that's what the Jewish people believed, and that's where we get that in the Old Testament. You know, Solomon built the temple, okay? And it's, it's very important, and only Jewish people were allowed in the temple. And in fact, if you were unclean in some way, you would have to go through seven days of cleansing yourself, which Paul actually did. But when he got into the temple, people learned that he was hanging out with Greek people or Gentiles. And a rumor started going around that Paul actually brought these Gentiles into the temple, which is like a big no-no. Okay, that was like, 
not good, which there's no evidence that that actually happened, but that's the rumor, all right? And this kind of brings this fight, this, this um, disagreement to a head. And the Jewish leaders get really mad at Paul. And this frenzy starts happening, and they start attacking Paul. So the Roman soldiers who are in Jerusalem hear about this. They get word about this, and they're like, we need to step in. So they actually come in, and they take Paul into custody. And they realize that Paul is not safe. There is a threat to Paul's life if he stays in Jerusalem. So the good news for Paul, kind of, is that he is a Roman citizen. Okay, and what me, what this means is they said, well, how about you go and plead your case? We had to arrest you because you incited a frenzy and you were accused of all these things. So what if you go plead your case in Rome where you will be safer? So Rome is all the way at the top left-hand corner, if you look at the map here. So he travels all the way from Jerusalem up to Rome. And we're not going to get into that story, but it is a crazy journey from Jerusalem to Rome. If you want to read that, a lot of crazy things happened on that journey. But eventually, Paul lands in house arrest in Rome, where we believe he wrote the majority of his letters to the churches, which now become the epistles or our New Testament. Okay, again, sorry about that history lesson, all the nerdiness. I promise it's going to come together in the end. All right, it always does, right? So, before we even get started, we can see this tension between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, or people who were new to the faith and didn't care as much about the tradition or cultural expectations, and leaders in the faith who have been there from the beginning, who have been told that these traditions will honor God and save them, right? And Paul is stuck in the middle because he was raised Jewish and he was very devout and he knew the law better than most people of his day. But at the same time, he was on the front lines of the first missionary work, right? So he can see this new understanding of what it means to be saved and that all are invited no matter what culture they're from. So this leads us back to the letter to the Ephesians. So, if you have not read Ephesians in a while, or at all, I encourage you to read it this week. It's a short book, and if you just sit down and read it from the beginning to end, it should take you less than an hour. It's very easy, but it is chalked full of encouragement and practical application. It's so good, and it will have you jumping up and down for the joy of the Lord and the goodness that comes with following Christ, right? And we don't have time to go through the whole book, but I want to give you a general overview. And we're eventually going to settle in chapters 2 and 4. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in chapters 2 and 4. So before we get into the actual text, I'm just going to pray over the Word of God and just say a blessing over our time, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your Word and allowing us access to it. Thank you for speaking to us. I pray... Um, over myself that you'll give me the words. I hope, I hope that you will help me honor your words in a way that represents them well. I pray that um, the message that we can bring out from this text will fall in good soil and can be planted deep in the hearts of the people here. We'll give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, chapter 1 starts out with Paul praying over the church, and he thanks God for them, and he says, in fact, he doesn't stop 
thanking God for them. He prays that God will give them power and wisdom. And it's a beautiful chapter because many of Paul's letters were written to address a problem that was in the church. So a lot of times when churches would get letters from Paul, it was almost like, oh man, we're kind of in trouble. Like, you know, the principles getting onto us, but not this one. Paul is writing encouragement of how much he loves and appreciates the church in Ephesus. And he gives them these next steps and prays that they will continue with the same passion that he remembers them having when he spent those two years there. And again, I'm not sure if Paul would ever admit that he had favorites, but after reading chapter one, you have to admit that the church in Ephesus has to be up there in his list of like favorite churches, right? So then we start in chapter two and Paul writes about being alive in Christ. And if you read chapter two, verses one through 10, you'll probably recognize a lot of those verses. They're really popular and for good reason, but we're going to start in verse eight. And I am going to be reading out of the new American standard Bible, specifically the 1995 version, which I know is very specific and nerdy. And we'll get into why I'm using that specific version in a minute. But I just wanted to let you know if it looks different than yours, it's because I'm using a relatively obscure version of the Bible here. Okay. So let's start. Let's start in, uh, we got verse eight. I think I have a slide. There we go. Okay, so for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So show of hands, how many of you have heard this voice, this verse before? Something like, not saved by works. Okay, so a lot of you, okay? And if you were to look in your Bible, right after this verse, there's probably a section break. Does anyone, are you looking at your Bible? Is there a section break in your Bible right there? And it probably, there's a header that says something like unity in the church or unity amongst the uh, the Gentiles. Okay, so you might not know this, but those section breaks and chapters and verse numbers weren't in the original text. Okay, it was all one big letter, and we added those in ourselves to help us better locate things in the Bible when we're looking for something. But it's up to interpretation where we put those breaks. So the NIV, the NLT, the ESV, and a lot of other versions all put a section break here. But the New American Standard Bible doesn't. And I think that if you really understand the context that Paul, the relationship that Paul has with the Ephesian, you've read the book of Acts, or you've just participated in a Bible lightning round with Pastor Emily, you know that this section is really important. The next section is really important to the previous one. And a break kind of implies that they're different topics, but they're not. So we need to keep going to fully understand this verse. So verse 11 says... I think we have verse 11 up here. Okay. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Okay. We're going to pause here. That was a lot. That was very wordy, but we're going to make it through. All right. So first off, we see this word, therefore, and the word therefore acts like a hinge. It means that all of the previous things that were said before are important to understand what I'm about to say. And it tells us that we need to look before and after it in order to fully understand what the author is trying to communicate. So 
He brings in this issue that's driving a rift between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, right? Circumcision. And he notes that this is a point that many Jewish believers looked down on other believers for not being circumcised. And again, I talked about this earlier, but circumcision, people felt superior because they had the favor of God. They had the blessing of God. They were God's people. And this is a way to mark that. So when they followed these traditions, they kind of looked down on other people who didn't have these things because it's like i'm blessed and highly favored and you're not right and they kind of had this attitude that was built just on earthly things but again he says right after that which is performed in the flesh by human hands so this is a direct callback to what he said two sentences earlier right we are saved by faith not works so that no one can boast The Ephesians were hearing a lot of boasting that they were not truly saved because they didn't follow the cultural customs of the day. And Paul is encouraging them by saying, hey, this is not correct. You are saved and favored. And he goes into how they're saved later in the verse. So verse 12. All right. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel's and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul is saying that once you were far away, but now you're something different, right? The mark of the new covenant looks different now. Right, We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So let's keep going, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the amenity. So, Paul is reaffirming here that there was a divide between the Gentiles and the Jewish believers, but the wall was torn down by Christ. Here is the difference between worldly reconciliation and Christian reconciliation, right? God didn't just break down the wall that stood between two groups and say, now you are live in peace as two separate groups, right? He didn't just stop there. He took it a step further, right? Christian reconciliation says that Christ reconciled us to one body. We are not two separate people anymore. We are one people, a holy people. And we see that in verses 17 through 19. So it says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we are, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Wow. I love that. Okay. He preached to the Gentiles who were far away and he preached to the Jewish believers who were near and he preached peace to us all. And not only that, Paul will go on to say that you are no longer Gentiles or Jewish believers. We are holy ones, which is what that word saints directly translates to holy ones, which is also the same word for heavenly citizens or angels, right? He's saying we are a new thing. 
You no longer define yourself by your cultural expectation or your political affiliation, right? First and foremost, our identification amongst each other is co-heir with Christ. We are a heavenly citizen, a holy people. And this is a radical idea. So imagine two groups in our world today, our two groups, whatever those two groups may be, right? Coming together as one people and saying, I no longer define you by your political expectation. I no longer define you as your cultural expectation. We are now one people. And I first and foremost will look at you as a co-heir to Christ within the church, right? That's crazy. That is radical. But this is what's happening in the church in Ephesus, but like 10 times more crazy. Okay? This is happening. And this is real. God is reconciling these two people. It's possible. But we got to keep going. Paul goes on in chapter 3, he says, to say to the Ephesians not to feel guilty that he's in prison because he's in prison on their behalf, right? Like, fighting for the Ephesians and the believers there is what landed him in prison. And he said he would gladly go to prison if that meant that they got to know the riches of God and the mystery of the good news. He says that um, he is in prison for fighting to make room for those to be co-heirs again and to make them reconciled with their fellow co-heirs. And he says he would do it again. He would go back to prison if that meant that these people can be reconciled within the kingdom of God. So then we get to chapter 4, okay? And chapter 4 starts with a big therefore. And like I said before, we know that therefore acts like a hinge, meaning what I said before makes what I'm about to say really important. And this actually changes the whole rest of the book. So if you look at chapters 1 through 3, it hinges at uh, chapter 4, and then the rest of the book looks different. Okay, so it's really important what he's about to say right here. So, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, Paul is saying to the Gentiles that you have a new name, a new inheritance, a new calling. And now you have the responsibility to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And this is the part that I find a little bit weird, okay? Because Paul has spent all this time saying that they're worthy and saved and holy. And he prays for power and wisdom and stamina for them. And then he starts to give instructions on how they should walk. That they are heirs to the kingdom of God. Having access to the power of the Holy Spirit. Having formerly been persecuted even by fellow believers, right? And then he says something that I think is just so weird. Verse 2, he says, verse 2 and 3, says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This seems so counterintuitive, right? Paul has said now that you are called Christians. You need to walk in a manner worthy of your new name. With gentleness and patience and humility. So one of the other reasons that I chose the NASB, specifically the 1995 version, is because they use the word tolerance. So your version probably will say bearing with one another in love. And I like the word tolerance because it's kind of a buzzword in society. And I like 
to cause a little stir, um, in my opinion. Um, but tolerance, right, it, it kind of means something different to us now. Or it, within the church, when we have to tolerate something, that word tolerance, it feels very like something that we don't want to do, right? It kind of has this connotation that it's something bad. But tolerance just means to accept or endure someone or something unpleasant or disliked. Okay, to accept someone or something unpleasant or disliked. He's basically saying, now that I fought for you to be a part of the kingdom, I am a prisoner for the Lord on your behalf. Do not turn around and do what I do, what the other believers did to you, to the new believers, right? Approach them with humility and patience and tolerance, right? Just because they worship God a little differently or they come from a different culture than you, right? Doesn't mean that they also don't have access to the promise of God and his goodness and his forgiveness. Doesn't mean that they aren't also co-heirs with Christ. This is what Paul is saying. And then he begins to say, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace Right? He wrote earlier that God reconciled us to each other. He broke down that wall, right? Paul is now saying that it's our responsibility to preserve that unity in the bond of peace. God did a lot of work to bring us together as one and put us on an equal playing field. And it's our responsibility to stick together as much as it depends on us. We live in a world that's so quick to say, if you don't act like me, you can't sit here right? If you don't dress the way I do, if you don't speak the way I do, or follow the same traditions as I do, then you aren't a real co-heir. You're a fake co-heir, right? And I have news for us. We were all once the Gentiles. In fact, if all of us went back to where the church in Ephesus was, we would have been treated the exact same way the Gentiles got treated. We would have been outsiders, right? But now that we're insiders, we need to remember that we need to walk in a way that is worthy of being an insider, being humble and patient and tolerant, learning to say that just because we do things a little differently doesn't mean we can't exist in the same space. Now, don't get me wrong, right? There are times that we should stand up for what is right. Paul did, and he got arrested for it, right? By his own people, he got arrested, But I think that's what Paul is trying to say. If you read the rest of Ephesians, I think you'll come to the same conclusion that I came to. Let's be quick to humility and tolerance and slow to pride and division. Let's be quick to say, yes, you can sit here and slow to say, maybe we need to split because of this difference of opinion. Let's be quick to treat people like brothers and sisters in Christ and slow to accuse them of heresy. Um, And I'll invite the band to come back up as I wrap up with this. See, God worked really hard to bring us together. Christ went to the cross, right, in order for us to be one body, united in his spirit. So, church, I implore you, let's not be quick to shove us apart, right? Let's walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's reconcile between the church and other believers as much as possible, Let's preserve unity and peace. Let's truly be co-heirs. Let's be known for the new covenant. Let's be known for love. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for breaking down that barrier to let people like us now have access to you. 
God, I thank you for the work that the early missionaries did. I thank you for all the protection that you gave them. God, I thank you for the people today who are still doing that missionary work and trying to unite us as one kingdom. God, I pray that as we move forward in our church as believers, God, that you will help us unite with people, even people it's hard to unite with, that we will look at people who who look differently than us and who act differently than us and who believe even a little differently than us, that we can still look at them and say, if you believe in Jesus and you believe he was who he says he was, that you're co-heir with me. God, I pray that we will remember that we are now heavenly citizens and that comes first. I pray that you will give us all the strength to go out and and love our neighbors and love our church members better because of what we know now. We'll give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray.